California and Florida rank number one and two as the most visited states in the United States where people go on vacation. Most of you have been to Florida or California at some point in your life to go to the beach, to go to Disney World or Disneyland. It's a very popular tourist destination. Number 46 on the list is Kansas. Is Kansas. I lived in Kansas. My son was born there. My wife and I met and married there. And so whenever we tell someone we're from Kansas, they kind of go, Kansas? You know, Kansas. They, along with millions of other Americans, ask, why would anybody want to vacation in Kansas, let alone live in Kansas? Most people say, you know, I've been through Kansas. I've, I've passed through Kansas. Man, I loved living in Kansas. I really did. I loved living in, I loved the rolling hills, the Flint Hills. It made you feel like you were in Dances with Wolves. Uh, if you're an outdoorsman, it's a great place to be. There's, there's woodlands and forests and tons of animals. Uh, it, it's great people. It's just a great place to live and, and raise your kids. But, but most of us are like, man, Kansas. Kansas, so boring. It's, it's so flat whenever I visit Kansas. It's just a bunch of small towns and, and nothingness. You know the reason they call Kansas a flyover state? Because no one really even wants to drive through Kansas. It's just not a place people love to be. Now again, I love Kansas. Now there are, are books in the Bible that we regularly love to visit. Books like Matthew, you know, Ephesians, the Psalms. We regularly visit those books because they're familiar to us and they're a little bit more easy to understand. They're more easily applied to our lives. And so we vacation there quite a bit. We spend time in such books, but there are huge chunks of the Old Testament that we avoid, that we fly over. Think about the book of Obadiah. I mean, when's the last time you spent some time in Obadiah? I mean, when's the last time you brewed a warm cup of coffee and, and opened up your journal and just sat there for 30 minutes soaking up uh, how God was judging Edom? And, and I mean, we don't, it's a flyover book. Those minor prophets. Think about the law that Paul has been talking about over and over and over again in his letter to Galatians. It's a huge chunk of the Old Testament found in, in Exodus, found in Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that we somewhat fly over or avoid because they seem so far removed from the person and work of Jesus. And there's over 600 commands in the law spread across these books. Worship like this, sacrifice like this, eat like this, dress like this, walk like this, talk like this, do this, jump through this hoop, perform this ritual, don't touch this, please touch this. I mean, there's all of these rules and regulations, over 600 commands that we just kind of ignore because we don't really know what to do with it. Especially in light of Paul's uh, truths that he uh, reveals to the Galatians in, in this book. 
His teaching that says man is not justified and made right with God by works of the law, but through faith in the atoning, righteous, imputing work of Jesus Christ. And so we kind of go, what was the law for? What was the law? Like, why did God give Israel the law? If it's not to save them, why did he give Israel the law? And, and does it have any bearing on our life today? What was he doing then? Why should I read those books that contain the law as a current modern day Christian? Turn to Galatians 3. Please get out your Bibles. Turn to Galatians 3. We're going to be uh, in there. Paul has been going after his opponents and their understanding of the law. You see, his opponents, his opponents in Galatia have been spreading a gospel plus. Man, you can believe in Jesus, but you also must adhere to the law. Certain dietary restrictions, circumcision. You must do these things to become a true child of Abraham. To be approved by God, accepted by God, to made righteous. And Paul has been saying, no, 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 no. He's been arguing by justification, by faith. And so he's been going after his opponents. The law does not bring life. Did the law give you the spirit? Greg talked about that. Did the law give you the Holy Spirit? Like, were you obeying the law and then all of a sudden, because you got to a certain point, because of merit, you received the Holy Spirit? Or was it because of faith? Because of faith. How was Abraham counted as righteous? By faith. It wasn't the law. We saw last week, how do we become sons of Abraham, accepted into God's family? By faith. By faith, by faith, by faith you are saved. By faith you are justified. By faith you are made right. By faith you are approved. By faith, by faith. And so you could just hear Paul's opponents saying, okay, Paul, let's pretend I agree with you. It's by faith. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. What was the law for? <laughs> Why did God give us the law and why did we spend years and years and years obeying the law if it wasn't to give life? And this is where we find ourselves in 3.15. Look at Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. You know, there are human covenants, human contracts, human covenants that cannot be, be changed, annulled, add to, or taken away from once they are ratified. I mean, think of a will, especially after someone has passed away. I mean, you can't walk in and say, oh, my, my grandfather, he wanted to give uh, all of his, his, his wealth to a nonprofit, but I really want a pool, so somebody give me an eraser. Like, like you can't do that. There are certain human covenants that are just binding once they're ratified. Now, I don't know if that's the type of covenant or contract or agreement that Paul has in mind, but you can kind of get his lesser or greater arguments. If, human take, if humans take those sort of covenants as binding, how much more will God? How much more will God not annul, add to, or take away from a covenant that he establishes? And, and then he goes to explain, here's what I mean. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham. Here's the covenant that he's talking about, that he will not annul. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings. 
referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Way back in the book of Genesis, God chooses Abraham. Abraham is from a pagan family. Abraham didn't do anything to earn this choosing, but God chooses Abraham and he gives him a promise of inheritance, of land, of universal blessing. I'll make you into a great nation. You'll inherit this land. I'll be with you. I'm going to bless you. So he gives them this promise of inheritance to Abraham and to his seed. Now, a normal Jewish person of that day would have said, well, I'm the seed of Abraham because I'm a physical descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I'm the one who's going to inherit those promises. But Paul wants to specify what he means by seed. What he means by seed. He doesn't mean these promises were made to all of Abraham's physical descendants, but one specific physical descendant. Who? Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing is he's helping his Gentile audience see how they can inherit the blessing of Abraham. How they too can become recipients of this promised inheritance. It's by being united with Christ and faith. You become heirs of that promise by faith. So when we place our faith we place our faith in the seed to whom that promise was made. And so we too become heirs of that promise. And we inherit the blessing of Abraham the same way Abraham did, by faith. For him, it was faith in God's promises that they would be one day fulfilled. We look back in faith on Christ and his atoning life-giving work on the cross. And I just want to stop here and just... just talk to you for a second. There's a lot of theological things going on there. You have an inheritance in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ. What does that mean? I, mean, I think there's things that we have inherited now. I mean, we have, we have God's presence in us now. You have the Holy Spirit. Talked about this all throughout Galatians. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's a down payment of that inheritance. That Holy, Holy Spirit is, is living in you, is working in you, is guiding you to righteousness. You have life with God. You have fellowship with God. This inheritance is salvation and, and all the blessings that come with it. But there's also an eye on the future. Because when you would hear the word inheritance, you would think land. Well, Abraham got land. Or he, he was promised land. Abram actually never got that land. <laughs> Does this mean we're going to get land? And my answer is, yeah. You will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. You will inherit the world. As, as heirs of, of Abraham, you will, you will receive a new glorified body that is not affected by the presence of sin and the consequences of sin, and you will reign with Christ forever. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, just joy, peace, contentment that we get a taste in this life. We will experience that ultimately in the to come in that new land with God. You have an inheritance in Christ. You receive the blessing 
that promise of inheritance that was given to Abraham that will ultimately be fulfilled in the age to come because you are a child of Abraham. You're an heir with Christ. You are one of God's children. And you will not receive that through law observance. You don't get that inheritance through law observance. You know, a lot of inheritance will say, hey, you need to do this, do this, do this, do this before you get this. We just trust God that he will fulfill his promises. We trust God for what he has done through Christ Jesus on our behalf. And then we receive that inheritance. That's crazy to think about. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here's what he's saying here. The Mosaic law, all 616 commands, that came hundreds of years after that original promise given to Abraham. And so the law does not invalidate the promise that we receive by faith. It does not annul or add to it. God is not saying, okay, you you received that inheritance. It used to be through faith. Now it's through observing the law. Now it's through doing all of these things. And by merit, you will inherit the promises that God gave to Abraham. He's not saying that. He's not saying that now the law is the way in which we inherit that blessing. The law is the way in which we are made righteous. He's not saying to be blessed, to be saved. You got to eat this way, rest this way, dress this way, worship this way, give this way, walk this way, talk in this very specific manner. It's by faith that original covenant stands. Now, imagine we got to put ourselves in uh, Paul's opponent's shoes or the Jews of the day, how they would have heard this. Because if you were a Jewish person of the day, you would, you would have thought that the law brings life, that the law is eternal. It would be around forever. We would adhere to it. And that's how we just imagine waking up every single day and saying, man, I, I got to memorize the Torah I got to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament so that I can be sure I do everything in it. And then imagine, you know, you're not eating certain things. Your clothing doesn't have certain fabrics in it. And you're not touching certain things. And you're doing these, these, these uh, you're sacrificing uh, just in hopes that, that God will be happy with you. And that's what your whole life has been based on. And then Paul comes in and says to you, your religion will not save you. You have been approaching this wrong the the entire time. You would be like, what a jerk. (laughs) You'd be like, and that's what Paul's opponents essentially said. How dare you? How dare you seek to undermine our faith? by saying it's by faith. We've been doing this our whole lives. How dare you come in 
And you could also see them saying, well, then why the law then, Paul? Why the law? Look at verse 19. And we're going to read through this. And I may have you underline some things here in a second, but 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Underline that term, because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That verse is kind of weird. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. It's the idea that the, the, the promise was given from God to Abraham. The law had God, angels, Moses, the people of God. And so it's kind of an argument that this one is better than this one. <laughs> There's less intermediaries. It's, just, it's a weird argument, but that's kind of the argument that Paul is making. 21, is the law contrary to the promise of God? Do these things contradict each other? Are they competing with one another? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Go back up to verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What does what that mean? Here's the first part of our, our, our big idea. The law reveals the depth of our sin. The law reveals the depth of our sin. It is a mirror to help you understand how sinful you actually are. The law doesn't make you a sinner. Your sin does. <laughs> the law doesn't make you a sinner. It simply exposes the fact that you are a sinner, that I'm a sinner. My children sin. I love my children. But guess what? They are not perfect. They mess up. They sin. So do I. But that sin isn't obvious until I say, don't do that. And then they say, I'm going to go ahead and do that. That sin is not on full display. In Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would have not known what sin was if it hadn't been for the law. It reveals our sin. It increases our sin. In Romans 7, 5, he talks about our sinful nature being aroused by the law. In 520, he says the law came to increase the trespass. And there, and there are many ways to kind of think about this, but it's easy to see that when the law says, do not touch that red button, there's a little sinful kid in all of us that says, I know it's wrong to touch the red button now, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. In fact, you telling me that it's wrong to touch that red button, kind of exciting. Wonder what's going to happen if I touch that button. I mean, the guilt is increased when we come face to face with the law. Some think the law was given to restrict sin, to minimize sin. And I guess my question would be, if you say that, 
When Israel received the law, I mean, so you had Adam's sin, sin comes into the world, and then Israel is given the law of Moses. Do they just stop sinning? <laughs> no, their sin increases. They abound. They, right after getting, they just start making up gods and worshiping them. They continually turn their back on God, even though they have the law. And so the law has this effect. It reveals the depth of our sin and our inability to do anything about it. Look at verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Look at verse 23. We were held captive under the law. The law reveals to us that we are prisoners, held captive, enslaved to sin, serving a death sentence, and we are unable to save ourselves. The law puts us in a prison that we are unable to escape from. So the law reveals the depth of our sin. But it's important to note when we, when we look at this, that the law was meant to be temporary. While the promise of Abraham was permanent, Paul tells us that the law arrangement wasn't. Look at verse 19. Until the offspring should come. Look at verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Look at 23. Until the coming faith would be revealed. Look at 24. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is also called our, our guardian. Now, when it says that the law is our guardian, think less of your, your second grade teacher, Miss Fossbender, who loved to give you stickers and, and draw smiley faces on your paper. Think more of uh, those strict disciplinarian teachers that you grew up with who were quick to rebuke and quick to condemn. But, but here's the point. Every guardian, every tutor, every schoolmaster is temporary. You're not in second grade forever. At some point, you come from un, out from under their authority. And that's the point Paul is making here. It was a temporary arrangement with a purpose. The law was given in order to highlight our need for a Savior. When we come face to face with the law, our sin is revealed. No one stands proud in front of the law. We can only say I'm a sinner and I can't possibly live up to that standard. I need a savior. It had a role to play in salvation history. And here, here's the, the rest of our, our big idea. The law reveals the depth of our sin and sends us to our savior. Guys, no one comes up against God's law and, and says, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing a good job right now. I can, I can pat myself on the back. I'm, I'm doing better than these guys over here. We all stand, stand condemned. We all stand guilty. And it moves us to say, man, I, I can't do anything about it. I can't, I can't live up to this standard. If I could, then righteousness would be through the law, but I can't. 
There's no one who's righteous. There's no one who can keep that law perfectly. We all fall short. We read that earlier. In front of the law, we stand condemned because we sin. But it also moves us to say, I need help. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to redeem me, to free me from this prison. The law reveals the depth of our sin and sends us to a savior. It helped Israel and us realize the power and depth of sin until, so that, 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 that word over and over again, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Justification happens when we put our faith in Christ as our substitute, the one who took our place and paid for our sins, and we are justified in Christ because he fulfilled the law for us, and through faith, his righteousness becomes ours. So the law given in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they fit into a larger biblical narrative. Why, why do you read the Old Testament? I, I read the Old Testament for a number of different reasons. I think we should read the Old Testament because we can first and foremost learn about God. You know, God is the same in both Testaments. There are people out there who say, no, the God of the Old Testament is uh, you know, a mean curmudgeon, He's like the kind of get off my lawn sort of uh, grandpa who, who yells at kids and uh, is ready to, to, to punish and hurt. And, and, but the God of the New Testament is just all about hugs, man. He just loves to hug and he loves to hug anybody no matter what. I mean, so they're very di- God is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's the same God. And when we read in the Old Testament, we read about God's faithfulness and mercy, his just nature, his righteous nature, time and time again. I read the Old Testament because everything points to Jesus. We're going to talk about that this summer. But everything points to Jesus, the dietary laws. Jesus talks about those. He fulfills those dietary laws through his, his, his life, death, and resurrection. The sacrificial system. Why Man, all these sacrifices and all these, you know, putting your hand on this and like kill it. It was all meant to point us to a greater sacrifice. A greater sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, I read the Ten Commandments because Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments. He says, love God and love others. Well, the first four commandments are about loving God. The last six are about loving others. And here's the crazy part. We can actually obey those commands now because we have Jesus Christ living in us. Also, there's there's a lot of different reasons to, to, to read the Old Testament. But an important reason to read the Old Testament is to see the bigger picture of salvation history. To see how God was working from Adam, from Abraham, to Moses, to David, all the way to Jesus. The promise was given to Abraham, and Abraham received it through faith. The law was given to expose our sin and our helplessness, to move us forward so that we might place our faith in Jesus Christ and receive the inheritance. 
Why then the law? John Stott said, because he had to make things worse before God can make things better. The purpose of the law, as it were, were to lift off man's respectability and disclose what he's really like underneath, sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must be allowed to do its duty today. We've, we as a church, and, and I love the church, man. I, I love the churches in town. I, I do not think I am better, uh, but, but we collectively as the church are good at a lot of things. We're not good anymore <laughs> talking about things like sin, judgment, and death because we stand guilty in front of the law. In fact, there are, there are many churches who have moved away from the word sin. Just too, just too offensive. We got to say things like, you know, you bad habits or, or mistakes or, or brokenness or bad choices. But we can't say something like sin. We can't. We can't move to the gospel too quick sometimes. We talked about this on, on Wednesday night at, at First Wednesdays. First Wednesdays. Stott adds here, we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law, until the law has first revealed him to himself. And I, and I quoted this on Wednesday. It's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. It's why it's okay at times to reflect on the depth of our sin, our law breaking, how short we've fallen when it comes to God's standards. Before we move our hearts to to the great gospel truths of, of forgiveness and salvation and inheritance and life through Jesus. Because when we contemplate the, the depth and power of our sin, we'll see the magnitude and power of the gospel. 